From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where sometimes we veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Shannon, Rebecca, Walter, Jennifer, Elena, Elise, Ariel, Chantel, Stacy, Jessica, my dear two Emmas, Whitney, Rachel, Alethea, Catherine, Linda, Teresa, who is God tier at this point, Sophie, Nanette, David, Trudy, and John. Thank you so much, guys. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron, like, share, subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me and we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with the listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. Today's podcast will be on something we haven't done for a while, a cult. And I apologize again, my voice is still not all the way back. So today we will be talking about the Canadian cult leader known as Brother 12. His real name was Edward Arthur Wilson, born July 26th, 1878, near Birmingham, England. So as we always do, let's get into some history for that time. Early in the year, the Russo-Turkish War Battle of Shipka Pass was going on where Russian and Bulgarian forces defeated the Ottoman Empire just as Greece was declaring war against the Ottomans as well. Umberto became Italy's new king. Anti-Russian demonstrations were occurring in Hyde Park, London. So, you know, war as usual. But the phonograph was officially patented by Thomas Edison. The Tokyo Stock Exchange was established, and Edward Mybridge produced the sequence of stop-motion still photographs Sally Gardner at the Gallup in California, which was the predecessor of silent film, demonstrating that all four feet of a galloping horse are off of the ground at the same time. E. Remington and Sons in the U.S. introduced their number two typewriter, the first with a shift key, which enabled production of lower as well as uppercase characters. The Salem Witchcraft Trial, the last of its kind in the U.S., opened in Salem, Massachusetts. The yellow fever epidemic began in New Orleans, eventually killing 4,500 people. John B. Watson, the American psychologist, was born this year, as well as Harry Carey and Julie Manet, the French painter. 
But 1878 is the year that Joseph Stalin was born as well, who went on to be the leader of the Soviet Union. So this was the global atmosphere that Edward was born into. Edward's parents were Thomas Wilson, who was a master craftsman, and Sarah Ellen Pearsall. Thomas and Sarah were married in 1877 at the ages of 29 and 23, respectively. They lived in Worcestershire, which is just south of Birmingham, England. In 1881, when Edward was two years old, the couple had his little sister, Frances, and when he was 12, the couple had another daughter, Elsie. Census records show they also had a servant living with them. The census records also show that Elsie died in 1893 at just eight years old, but from what I wasn't able to find. Thomas and Sarah had their final child, a daughter they named Mabel in 1892. Elsie would have died a year after Mabel was born. So this was Edward's birth order and known siblings. Now, Edward was raised in the Catholic Apostolic Church and was heavily influenced by their apocalyptic teachings. As far as the beliefs of this church and when it originated, sources say that a group of Christians in England in the early 1800s decided that the second coming of Jesus himself would be preceded by a restoration of the original College of the Twelve Apostles. This college would be made up of, like, rulers, teachers, ministers, and so on. So this group belonged to a prayer circle that, beginning in 1826, met once a year at the country estate of one Henry Drummond, who was described as a devout and wealthy London banker. This group began praying for a revival of the gifts of the apostolic church, these include such things as speaking in tongues, healings, miracles. You get the idea. Now, this group of Christians came under the influence of Edward Irving, who was a pastor of a Presbyterian church in London who had joined the group. His influence made the group be referred to as the Irvingites. Now, Irving became absolutely convinced that Jesus was going to make his return in 1864, so he ordered revivals for the teachers and the ministers and the evangelists to get together to speak in tongues and perform miracles, all the things. This was the atmosphere that Edward was exposed to throughout his childhood. And with this very strict and um, colorful religious upbringing, he would later claim that he had been, in fact, in communication with supernatural beings as a child. About this, he said, quote, At first, I thought that these were angels, but as I grew older and received teaching, I learned of the masters and their work for humanity, end quote. So Edward became passionately interested in mysticism and theology from an early age. When he was just 12 years old, he decided he didn't want to go into the master craftsman business with his father. Rather, he went to sea and began apprenticing on a Royal Navy sailing ship where he worked as a mariner, then navigator, and eventually worked his way up to being captain. But during his time at sea, 
He really immersed himself in his studies of world religions and theosophy, which is a philosophical system based on the belief in a universal, eternal principle fundamental to all life. The mystical overtones of its proposition of the fundamental identity of all, quote, souls with the universal soul are somewhat similar to the doctrines of Buddhism and Hinduism. And if you've been with me for a while, theosophy should sound familiar because the Theosophical Society was founded in New York in 1875 by Helena Petrova Blavatsky, whom I've covered, and I'll leave a link in the notes if you're interested in her. It was an interesting episode. Edward would have been three years old when Helena did this. She and others created this society to, quote, form the nucleus of a universal brotherhood of humanity without distinction of race, creed, sex, caste, or color, end quote. The society has also sought to encourage study of comparative religion, philosophy, and science. Edward studied the occultist religious movement, the idea of karma and reincarnation. He believed that the world was being guided toward a spiritual awakening by a group of enlightened beings known as the Masters, and this was all I could find out about his childhood. There's not a lot there for me to make any definitive opinions on, but we can see that being raised in such a strict and let's say eccentric, religious environment would have shaped his impressionable young mind. According to Scientific American, quote, children with a religious upbringing show less altruism, end quote, which basically means when a person acts to promote someone else's welfare, even at the risk or cost to themselves. Behavior is normally described as altruistic when it is motivated by a desire to benefit someone other than oneself for that person's sake. So even though conventional religion, such as Christianity, advertises that to be charitable and concerned for the welfare of others is central to the belief, children born in very religious homes are less charitable. New research conducted in six countries around the world suggested that a religious upbringing may actually yield children who are less altruistic, like we said. Over 1,000 children, ages 5 to 12, took part in the study from the United States, Canada, Jordan, Turkey, South Africa, and China. By finding that religious-based children are less altruistic in the laboratory, the study alerts us to the possibility that religion might not have the wholesome effects we expect on the development of morality. Religious trauma in childhood is broken down into three categories. Religious shock, which results when trauma violates deeply held religious beliefs. For example, if children believe that God consistently rewards the good and punishes the evil, then having suffered you know, undeserved trauma can create the secondary trauma of shattering core beliefs. The second category is religion and trauma reinforces one another. The trauma may or may not originate in the church, but the institution and its teachings amplify it. 
With this kind of religious trauma, children don't question whether God's reward system is just or worry that they might deserve their suffering. They know they deserve it. And the third and final category is that religion is the trauma. Some faiths raise children to believe that human beings are depraved creatures beset by constant danger in this world and the next. They school the young in terror, sometimes with the help of lurid pictures of hell, of demons trying to ensnare them, of martyrdom, and of imminent apocalypse. Childhood experts sometimes condemn violent fairy tales, but I rarely see the criticism of violent Sunday school lessons. A grandmother eating wolf seems tame next to screaming, writhing bodies in a lake of fire, whether described or illustrated in children's Bibles. And while we can't really know for sure what influence his rather extreme religious upbringing had on him on a cognitive level, I read a few studies that had varying results on this matter. Some say bringing children up in pretty heavily religious households is quite detrimental. Other sources say that while it hinders creativity and personality, individuality, as well as understanding of math and the sciences, religious household children seem to have much better social skills. But I can already hear you leaving comments about children raised in cults, and that does have some interesting information around it. Children raised in these environments often have a distorted view of family, the nuclear family, and so on. Children also tend to develop a divided identity, one outwardly compliant with the cult's rules, an identity the child is taught that is good, the other inwardly rebellious, an identity the child is taught to consider is evil. The cult environment may be viewed as a socializing system, which is much more influential on children than adults because children in this setting are in the process of developing their sense of self, their view of the world and their identity, while adults who join a cult have an identity formed outside of that cult. There is a consensus in the cultic studies literature that adults who join cults bring with them a pre-cult personality and identity that they can then reconnect to when they leave the cult. In contrast, the very personality of SGAs, which are second-generation adults, people born or raised in the occultic group, is constructed within the cult. So children born into the cult have a much harder time trying to integrate into society if they leave, escape, or the cult dissolves. There is also the isolation from mainstream society. Some groups limit all interaction with outside society, living in isolated communities, homeschooling their children, refusing outside medical care, eliminating access to mainstream news, television, books, music, and so on. Other groups allow members to live, work, and go to school in mainstream society, like Mormons. However, they still exercise a high degree of control over how the members interact and interpret their experiences outside of the group. 
We have the very real physical versus psychological isolation or the cognitive and emotional suppression. I could go on and on. If you want a separate podcast on children and the effects of cults, just let me know and I'll make another true crime science episode. But the point of this is children and cults, not good. So let's get back into the story. So in 1902, at 24 years old, Edward married 22-year-old Marjorie Clark, who had been born in Australia in 1880, and they were married in New Zealand. The couple quickly had two children together, a son and a daughter. They then decided to move to British Columbia, Canada in 1907. Now, while living there, he held various jobs, including that of a ship's pilot. While out, he continued his studies of world religions. Then in 1912, he apparently passed through a, quote, ceremony of dedication from which he was told or he learned of his occult mission. This was his religious epiphany, if you will. After this experience, he abandoned his wife and children completely and returned to sailing around the world, eventually settling in the south of France in 1924 when he was 46 years old. His wife and children, not long after he left them, returned to New Zealand. While staying in the south of France in the autumn of 1924, he had become quite poor and was in very poor health. And it was during this that he saw a floating Egyptian cross in the water that spoke to him, the voice belonging to an Egyptian deity who allegedly told him to prepare for his, quote, great task. And one must keep in mind that very recently before his hallucination, we had discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun or King Tut. So after hearing this voice, he went through what was described as an intense period of automatic writing and inspirational contact with a higher being who identified himself as a master of wisdom. He had joined an occult brotherhood known as the Great White Lodge, which is believed by theosophists to guide the very evolution of humanity. I know, heavy stuff. By the next year, Edward began to collect his writings from the teaching of these entities, and he would publish a book the following year, The Three Truths, a simple statement of the fundamental philosophy of life as declared and shown to Brother Twelve. And this name he gave himself in his book is the name he would then be known as Brother Twelve. In 1926, he also published, quote, a message from the Masters of Wisdom, which was the manifesto of the movement for which he was the spokesperson. And as I stated, he was the representative of the 12th brother in the Great White Lodge, again taking that name. He also wrote several works under the name E.A. Shaler, as well as many articles in the Occult Review, which was the world's foremost occult journal. And he created quite the stir among the rich who were then actively seeking occultists or spiritual enlightenment. He would say that when he wrote his works, he would have visions and fall into deep trances. 
In his writings, he laid out a philosophy of universal brotherhood and warned of the coming destruction of the current social and political order. It was said that some experts likened him to a cross between L. Ron Hubbard and Rasputin to give you some perspective. It was said that he briefly returned to England where his writings attracted the attention of British theosophists. His writings were then published across Europe and then North America. So, in 1927, he established the headquarters of the Aquarian Foundation at the Cedar-by-the-Sea, which was around seven miles south of Nanimo on Vancouver Island. Aquarian meaning the age of Aquarius. So, a core group of conveniently wealthy British supporters and followers joined him there. They created a settlement to prepare for the new world that would rise from the destruction of the current one. And boy, does that sound familiar. And then the recruitment began. He used the money his wealthy benefactors gave him, since he had a talent for wooing rich widows in particular, to buy nearly 200 acres of land and began building his community, or commune compound, whatever you want to call it. He would encourage his followers to sell everything they owned and move to the land, the area of Cedar by the Sea. At first, there were only a dozen or so people that had joined him on the compound, but within a year's time, he had gathered more than 8,000 supporters from across North America who sent him money for his group, because he encouraged it through his writings. But his goal for the commune was to be a completely self-sufficient community, separate and independent of the outside world, with him as the spiritual teacher, but he also dabbled in political activism in support of the Democratic Party. I mean, can any of us say Jonestown? But the problem is that, as we saw in Jonestown, That Brother Twelve worked his people far past the limits of human endurance. Day and night they worked and built, and they weren't allowed much rest. His reasoning was that it was a sort of test of physical endurance for spiritual advancement. And if he felt you weren't pulling your weight or being as loyal as believed his followers should be, He had a cellar on a property nearby that he would lock his followers in as punishment. His people had to clear their own land by hand, carrying the stones off in baskets, which they emptied on the seashore. For implements, they had picks, shovels, hoes, and mattocks. Their work began at dawn and ended after sunset. Those who thought of escape realized that they were elderly and penniless, and they feared the curse Brother Twelve might put on them. In the cool of the day, they gathered to hear him speak from under the branches of a moss-hung maple tree. He said, quote, The world will say, This man, myself, is mad. But it has always said so of all who departed from its miserable conventionalities, Moses, Gideon, the Baptist, all were mad. Jesus was mad. Of him they said, he hath a devil. Savonarola, Galileo, Madame Blavatsky, founder of Theosophy, 
all were mad in the opinion of the mediocre, mad or inspired. I also am mad or inspired, but I am not mediocre. I am not a person filled with power, but a power using a personality. The hour has struck for this earth to be plowed and harrowed. I have been called to drive the plow. You must choose whether you will be the plowshare or the clod which is broken, for the ground must be prepared that the seed may be sown. End quote. Now, he was most assuredly anti-Semitic and anti-Catholic, and his writings did find a receptive audience. He argued that the world was moving rapidly toward global dictatorship and warned that a network of, quote, interlocking monopolies would concentrate world power in the hands of a few individuals who would then control the fate of the planet. After creating the Foundation's monthly magazine, The Chalice, he then used it as a platform for his political views. In 1928, he made the journey to Washington, D.C. to solicit support for a third party in the U.S., aside from Republicans and Democrats, and aligned himself with Protestant groups, including the Ku Klux Klan, that were against the then-presidential candidates, one of whom was a Roman Catholic. Brother 12 actually predicted the 1928 federal election would end in a violent civil war, um, spoiler, it didn't. And yet, in the same breath, he began claiming that he was the reincarnation of the Egyptian god Osiris. This was the beginning of some of his followers arguing that point, and so he backed off a bit, saying that he had meant it figuratively, that Osiris and Isis were male and female principles of nature, but he had managed to convince a female follower by the name of Myrtle Baumgartner that she and he were in fact reincarnations of Osiris and Isis and that they were destined to give birth to their generation's Horus who would go on to save the world. Unfortunately, Myrtle had miscarriage after miscarriage and suffered a nervous breakdown as a result. He also wooed a woman named Elma Wilson, who he said was his wife, though he had never divorced his first wife, and he and Elma were never married. Now, his followers did not like this because they had been led to believe he was married and he was having these affairs, and the members did not agree with that, though he told him he did not enjoy the encounters, that they were merely to produce the next savior. Again, he told his followers, I am not a person, but a power, right? So he was described as a small, scraggly bearded man with pale and baleful eyes who wore a yellow Buddhist cloak with black markings. He preached that he and the compound inhabitants were chosen to save all of mankind from impending calamity, which was, as he described, that the planet Aquarius would collide with the earth and destroy all of mankind, except, of course, for his chosen few. They would only be worthy, though, if they followed his three rules, work, order, and obedience to him. They then sent him their life savings as he took complete control over their lives. 
He even kept a very suspicious human skull wrapped in some kind of sack in the attic of a main house that he called the House of Mystery. It is speculated that he murdered. He told his followers that he was the son of an Anglican missionary and an East Indian princess. He was described as being about five foot six, quite slim, sallow, but dapper, with a receding chin and large Adam's apple, who could usually be seen wearing a red rosebud in his dark lapel. He was said to have been a smooth talker with eyes so crystal light blue that they nearly faded into the whites. But the donations kept coming in until later in 1928, the now 50-year-old Brother 12 was accused of misappropriating $25,000, which was a contribution from a wealthy supporter. The charge was dismissed when the supporter stated that it had been a gift, but things were slowly beginning to unravel. In another court case, a worker from the commune sued Brother 12 for unpaid wages. In 1929, he met a woman named Mabel who renamed herself Madame Z, and they were instant lovers. They apparently were joined in an occult ceremony. It was said that Brother 12 and Madame Z were both becoming increasingly paranoid and abusive towards other members of the foundation and commune. He was taken to court again by some followers who wanted him to return the money that they had given to him and word around the campfire was that the court proceedings were plagued by strange occurrences, including an attorney that fainted, the judge randomly growling like a dog, and a follower claiming he had attempted to assassinate his enemies with black magic. And after all of that, he was ultimately victorious in his legal battles, but was a complete failure in his political plans, as well as his inability to produce a child that would save the world. And more and more followers became disillusioned. So Brother 12 and Madame Z took a trip overseas to England, and it was said that when he returned to the settlement, he appeared to be a changed man, he isolated himself from most of his disciples and showed signs of extreme paranoia. He armed a small group of his followers, fortified the colony, and would throw himself into fits of rage. Some have speculated that perhaps he was using drugs or the behavior was the manifestation of a progressive madness, which had been suspected for a few years. Any new recruits to the cult had to apply for membership, and their monetary contribution had to be in the form of gold. He began a regimen of grueling physical labor on the disciples, forcing them to work crazy long hours on the colony's farm in conditions that were tantamount to slavery. The disciples willingly accepted these hardships and privations, believing that they were tests of their spiritual fitness. Yet in the spring of 1932, as Brother 12's mental condition deteriorated, the colony members revolted and demanded that he explain his tyrannical and arbitrary behavior. Enraged that his authority should be challenged, he banished the remaining loyalists. 
This is when it was said that he began to amass a fortune in literal gold, exchanging the money donated to him into gold coins. He then vandalized and destroyed the colony, smashing the buildings and farm equipment, then fleeing on his sailboat named Lady Royale. He and his mistress traveled to and lived in Devonshire, England for a while before allegedly moving to Switzerland, seeking medical assistance from a doctor living there who had once been a devout follower. Now, there exists a death certificate suggesting that Brother 12 died in November 1934 of angina pectoris, which is described as a condition marked by severe pain in the chest, often also spreading to the shoulders, arms, and neck, caused by an inadequate blood supply to the heart. It is experienced as a squeezing pressure, heaviness, tightness, or pain in the chest, but it is temporary chest pain. Per Healthline.com, you cannot die from this as it is a symptom, not a disease or condition. Now, it is a sign of coronary artery disease, meaning he might have been at an increased risk of having a heart attack and those can kill you. So there's that. And yet someone stated they saw him in San Francisco two years later, suggesting that he had faked his death, which is quite plausible. The former Aquarian Foundation compound has become a popular site for treasure hunters who believe Brother 12 may have hidden additional jars of gold coins throughout the islands. It's a really interesting story, isn't it? Tell me guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is in the notes. And as always, thank you so much guys for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much guys. Have a great day. Uh, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.